Back in the late 80s and early 90s, Marcy and I had the privilege of pastoring Three Cities Assembly of God in Burlingame, California, which is right near the San Francisco airport. We had come out of uh, the Sacramento Valley and out of youth ministry, and then this became our first opportunity to be a lead pastor. It was, it was a tremendous experience. God blessed us, and we were, uh, we were blessed in so many different ways. One of the things that we found was the San Francisco Bay Area, even uh, so many years ago, the cost was just extraordinary. It was extreme. There's no way to say it, especially in the area of housing. Everything else was pretty relative, but housing was just beyond anything that we could imagine. And so we struggled literally for six years trying to just manage living in, in the Bay Area, housing-wise. So one of the things that I set out to do, or we set out to do, was to purchase a home for the church. Now, that's not all that common anymore is to have a church-owned property for the pastor. But there was virtually, it was almost an impossibility for a pastor to come in and to purchase a home. It just wasn't within the realm of possibility. So we set out on that quest. We looked, I don't know how many properties looked at over six years. It was just an extraordinary amount. Well, fast forward to 1994. That was our last year there. I got a phone call from our realtor. She was a part of our church. And she said, Pastor, I think I've found a house. And I went, oh, that's fabulous, Esther. What? She said, here's the address, and I'll meet you there in such and such a time. And I went, oh, this is great. And then she paused, and I heard these words, this word, Pastor, just think potential. And I went, oh, no, <laughs> what, what am I stepping into? Well, when I arrived at the property, I looked at this, and I went, you've got to be kidding me. It was a disaster. Literally, the best thing that could have happened to the property would have been a bulldozer, would have been just to take it down. It was gone. So we walked inside the house. Now, I am not a builder. I'm, I don't know much about building, but this much I know. You should not, inside a house, be walking uphill and downhill. Okay, that much I know. That shouldn't be happening, but that was happening. The previous owners had made this a board and care home. And they had people sleeping everywhere, including the garage. It was, the place was an absolute mess. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world, how in good faith can we buy this thing? Well, it was, the price was what determined that we would buy it. So we bought it. And then we started to do our inspections to see what we had to figure out, what we had to do to actually occupy the property. And Gratefully, one of, our, one of the men on my board was a, a concrete contractor. And so Dwayne said, hey, don't worry about it. I'll get underneath the house. I'll check out the foundation. I said, yeah, it's important to check that out because, you know, I've been going up and hill and downhill inside the, you know, inside the house. That ain't going to work. So he gets under and he comes out and he said, well, he says, it's a mess. He says, there are cracks. There's erosion. This, the foundation is just literally falling apart. The, pier, the piers that have been dug, they're, they're gone. They're going to have to be replaced. It's just on and on and on. I'm thinking, what in the world? This place is a, a mess, and this much I know. Until we can repair that foundation, we can't do anything else to the house. But we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning, kind of from the life of Jephthah and his experience. The, the, one of the phrases that we've been using these past few weeks is breaking faith, and this is really important, breaking faith and broken faith creates brokenness. Breaking faith... Breaking faith and broken faith creates brokenness. And Israel has done this time and time again. In fact, 
in these series and messages, you, you've, you've heard me say they literally will do this 12 times, in part or in full or in part. And I keep coming back to this. Why would, why would this cycle continue? Why does it, why doesn't it finally come to a conclusion, a, a, a climax, and be, and be finished, that they would move on? And then, what is the solution? What is the solution to bring them out of this incredibly self-destructive spiral? You see, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 15 and verse number 4. He said, such things were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us. And the Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. You see, we look at this story or these stories in the Old Testament, and sometimes, even though we're separated by thousands of years, you say, what point does it, what point is it that we would, that we would read this? Why would we spend any time with this? What, what application does it have? But the Apostle Paul reminds us that these stories are for our benefit. They help us. Because even though there's a separation of, of literally millennia, thousands of years, the principles are just as applicable to our lives today. And we could ask ourselves the same questions. Why do we continue in cycles, of spirals away from that which is pleasing to God? Why is it? What's the solution for our lives? What do we do? So we're going to spend a few moments talking about this particular judge. His name was Jephthah. So let me encourage you, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them because we're going to use a lot of Scripture today. And the Scripture will be on the screen, but there's a lot of it. And you may not be able to keep up with it. i do not been able to put it into your notes because of just the sheer volume. We're going to begin at Judges chapter number 10 at verse number 6. And I want to encourage you, read the entire story of Jephthah at your, uh, at your convenience this week. It's chapters 10, 11, and 12 of the book of Judges. Beginning at verse number 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead and the land of the Amorites. And the Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim. Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Once again, the Israelites did evil, as the Scripture says. And then God does this. He sells them into the hands of their enemies. There's a couple of things that are unique in the results out of this. The first is this, is that all Israel, all Israel is impacted. Up until this point, the, the, the oppression that Israel has found themselves under has been somewhat regional. It's not affected the entire land, but now not only on the one side of the Jordan River are the Ammonites oppressing, but they cross the Jordan and they begin to, to, to oppress Judah and Benjamin and other tribes. There is a wider spectrum of difficulty. All Israel has been impacted. You see, there is something happening. There is a national, I guess you could say, a national deterioration that is occurring. An eroding 
of the foundational values of Israel. And it just continues. And now what was once regional has now impacted the entire nation. You see, our actions are directly related to the core values of our lives. And the impact, the impact of our actions have far-reaching implications. And what was true for Israel as a nation is also true for us as individuals. And I would, I would ask the question, are, how, how are our foundational values, how are those things within our life that, that God has put into our hearts, are they as strong as they've always been? Or are we moving away from those foundational values and convictions? James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 says, Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Do you notice the spiral that's here? It's a spiral down and away from the things of God. And you see, it starts off innocent enough as a temptation, but by the time it's full grown, something has happened, sin has given birth to death. If we are inattentive, hear this carefully, if we are inattentive and lackadaisical, we can spiral downward if our values that were once strong erode. Just as with the house that we purchased, it wasn't something that just happened immediately. It was something that happened over time. It was a gradual process of erosion. It was a gradual process of disintegration, which led to, the, to the, literally the foundation crumbling under that house. And that's what was happening in Israel. There has been something that had happened over time again and again and again. And their national values, their, natu- their national core values, that which God had implanted in them was eroding and disintegrating. You see, Israel is described as being in great distress. I wonder if you've ever been in great distress. And not so much from the things from the outside, but what about the things that we have brought upon ourselves by our own And I won't even say ours, I'll say mine. What distress have I brought on myself by my own inattentiveness? You see, that's not God's plan for our lives. The Apostle Paul would write this to Timothy. He says, hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me. A pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. You see, those of us of faith, God has entrusted to us some precious truth, and we are to guard it with our lives. We are to guard it well. It's been given to us, and and God has a great plan for each of our lives. We dare not be inattentive or lackadaisical about the foundational values of our lives. The second thing, is that so unique here, is that there's confession without repentance. And that is really significant. Israel cries to the Lord, we have sinned, but there's no confession. There's confession, but there's no change. They take no action upon their profession or confession. There is no turning away from sin and turning towards God. You know, I wonder, a little audience participation this morning. How many of you admit you've ever done something you were sorry that you did it? Yeah, about all of us. 
I was growing up, it was summertime in our home, and, and mom had made strawberry shortcake. And nothing like strawberry shortcake in the summertime in a place where, you know, especially then, you didn't get strawberries like we do now. They were seasonal. You had to get frozen ones in the wintertime. Now you get fresh all the time. We had fresh strawberries. It was great. We had a Sunday night service, and I'd gone to church, and, and I was the first one out when church was over. We live right next door to the church, so I ran home, and I immediately ate the rest of the strawberries. So nobody else could get them. I ate them all. So when mom and dad came home, mom said, Gary, did you eat the strawberries? And I went, yeah. How come you ate them? Well, because I wanted them. She said, you know, you should have saved them for, you should have let everybody, I said, well, you know, whatever. So I didn't really care. I had my strawberries. Nobody else got them. No big deal to me. Here's the thing. I got caught. I was not at all sorry that I ate them. I was just sorry that I got caught. And I wonder how often when God by his spirit prompts in our lives, we're just sorry we got caught and we do nothing with it. Confession, confession without repentance, it's not good. It's not good. You see, sorrow for sin is good. Sorrow for sin is good, but is it enough? Is it enough? The second little talking point this morning is what I would say is a response of God. Response of God. Chapter 10, verse 11 says, The Lord replied when the Egyptians and the Amorites... Now understand, this is following immediately upon what has happened. Okay, Israel has said, this is what's going on. Lord, help us. But there's been no change. Then God answers... The Lord replied with the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Am- excuse me, the Amorites, Ammonites, Philistines, Sidonians, Amalekites, and the Manites oppressed you and you cried for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. Now I want to tell you something. That's not the kind of response I want to hear from God. The only way that I can describe that response, the first part of God's response is cynical. He responds cynically. I don't like that word. I don't even like the fact, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that God would respond cynically. That doesn't feel right to me. Cynically means bitterly or sneeringly, listen to this, sneeringly distrustful, contemptuous, and pessimistic. Do we want God, to, when we call out to him, to be pessimistic and distrustful of what we're saying to him? Not, not me. That's what he says to Israel. Based upon their response or lack thereof. They've responded, but they've done nothing with it. And he said, he says it two ways. He's cynical in two ways. First, I won't save you. God help us. If we have allowed the conviction of our life and the, to erode so much that we call out to God, we make no change, and the response we hear is, I'm not going to save you. God, help us. He reminds them he saved them from seven different adversaries. Seven times God delivered them. But now he says, I won't save you. The second part of that cynical response is let them save you. Who's he talking to? He's talking about idols. You've made the decision. 
You've made the decision. Let those idols that you have surrendered yourself to, let them be the ones who save you when you get into trouble. Think about that. No, I know, we don't have a carved statue of Baal or Asherah. We don't have that. We've got idols. To be frank, we put our trust in idols all the time. Above the worship of the true God. You see, an idol, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give to give you what only God can give. An idol is absolutely anything. The tricky thing about an idol is that they are usually good things. Idolatry, though, happens when we turn a good thing into a God thing. When the values of my life and the convictions of my life are eroding to a point where I can't determine what the true God is and an idol is, and I begin to put my trust in the idols of our day, I'm in a dangerous place. God is the only one that can fulfill our deep longings in life. No one else can. Jesus was tempted of Satan in Matthew chapter 4, and we read again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We dare not depend on anything other than God to satisfy us. It is to be God alone. And when there is any competing value in our lives, Only difficulty lays at the end. We are literally tempting God to respond cynically to us. If you're going to trust money, then trust it. If you're going to trust this, trust it. He will give us over to our own desires. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21 says, and I would say to all of us, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Yes, he responds cynically, but then he responds compassionately. And I'll just be honest, I like this a whole lot better. In Judges chapter 10, verse 15, we read, But the Israelites said to the Lord, now listen to the difference here. The Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best. When's the last time you prayed that prayer? I'm going to tell you, I can't remember if I've ever prayed that prayer. But look what they said. Do with us whatever you think is best, but please rescue us now. Look, then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. What was it? It was confession with repentance. They turned away from their idols and they turned towards God. And God said, because of your repentance, I will forgive you. He could not stand the misery any longer of his people. And I would suggest the same is true for us. He cannot stand the fact that we would be in a place of great distress. But he is waiting for us to turn away from and to turn towards him. What a powerful reminder and a powerful thought. Earlier they had confessed and there was no change because they had not repented, but here they repented and God responded. 
Hear this carefully. God is compassionate, but confession without repentance has little or no effect. And I know what that says, and don't misunderstand me. We come to Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, and we are saved. Hallelujah. There is nothing else. It is by grace through faith. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, there comes a point when there is, if there is a conviction of sin in our life, it is time for us to turn from and turn towards God and to begin to live in a way that honors Him and that pleases Him. Isaiah 55, and I'm going to change the nature of the language a little bit. Just look at it with me. Let the wicked change their ways. Let us change our ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let us turn to the Lord that He may have mercy on us. Yes, turn to God for He will forgive. What's the word? Generously. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Repentance results in forgiveness. The third talking point this morning is an unlikely leader. Now we get to Jephthah himself. Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, verse 11 says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was from Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, And the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Here we're introduced to Jephthah and really his resume. We get to see what this man is all about. There's a few character qualities. At first he was a mighty warrior. And that's obviously something very needed when you're going to go into battle. You need someone that can hold his own. The second part of his character is interesting. He's an outcast. His father, he's an illegitimate son of his father, and a relationship with a prostitute. And when this happens, his brothers from his mother and his father, or his, uh, his half, what, however that works, his half-brothers, they came to him and said, we don't want anything to do with you. They drove him off. So he left, and he goes to this other land, and he gets around a whole bunch of interesting people. In fact, it's really fascinating. Other translations, this is what they call these individuals that became his posse, as it were. You ready for this? Worthless, scoundrels, rowdies, malcontents, and those who would do anything for money. That's his resume. He is an outcast. He doesn't seem to have the kind of qualities that would lead the people of God. He's also a gifted communicator. You'll see as you look through Jephthah's life, he could... He was an incredible communicator. And he did that with even those who came from Gilead to try and recruit him. He was able to say, okay, we're going to do it, but this is how it's going to happen. And this is the responsibility I'm I'm looking for from you. They responded to that. He negotiates position, his position, and they accept his terms. Then we find out that he is the leader chosen by God. Judges chapter 11 and verse 3 reads, And he repeated all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. This simply confirms that he is God's choice. But one wonders, is Jephthah really worthy to be the leader of God's people with this kind of a resume? He's hanging around a bunch of scoundrels. He's an outcast. I mean, what, what is God thinking to use this guy? I'm reminded again of Hebrews chapter 11, 
says, what more shall I say? I do not have time to talk about Gideon and Barak and Samson and who? Jephthah. Jephthah. He is considered as to be one of the heroes of faith, even though he is an individual who is an outcast, is someone that all of us would look and say, wait a minute, how can this guy lead the people of God? It makes no sense at all. But you know, here's the reality. Those God calls, God equips. God sets them apart. And I want to tell you, there are times you may, as I, look in the mirror and say, God, why would you ever use me? Why would you ever choose this guy or this gal? What is that? I have nothing to bring to the table. And we are so convinced that we offer nothing. Maybe it's because of our past. Maybe it's because of our associations. I love Hillsong's new song. As who, it says, who you say I am expresses it perfectly. Listen to these words. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. I am. God is the one who defines each and every one of us. He is the one who sets us apart to do what he's called us to do. And when he does, he will equip us to accomplish what he's called us to be and called us to do. The next talking point is I would just say it's a bittersweet victory. This is a long passage. It's chapter 11, verses 12 to 15, and then verses 29 to 35. It says, then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me that you've attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, when Israel came out of Egypt, they took away my land. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. <clears throat> and he's saying this is what Jephthah says. It gives him an incredible response. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mispah of Gilead. And from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of my door, out of the door of my house to meet you, to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was only a child. <clears throat> she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and he cried, Oh no, my daughter, <clears throat> you brought me down and I'm devastated. <clears throat> I have made a vow. <coughs> Excuse me. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Jephthah dialogued with the Ammonite king. <clears throat> and he did something that was unique. He gave him four lessons. The first was a history lesson. <clears throat> he told the king of the Ammonites, he said, this land was never yours. He said, now you want it? The second part of that lesson is a theology lesson. He said, God gave us the land. You have a God. God gave you land. This is ours. The third was a lesson in precedent. The precedent was Moab tried the same thing. He said, no, 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 no. Moab tried this, tried to seduce, but they settled for a truce. 
And then the last lesson is a lesson in silence. We have been in this land for 300 years, and now you want it? So he schooled him. These communication skills were awesome. So he went to war, and God gave him the victory. But as good as Jephthah's diplomacy was, and as good as his ability to communicate was, he went one step too far in what he said. And you say, this is such an unfortunate event, Gary. I don't, I don't really get it. I mean, this, this promise that he makes about this sacrifice, and then it's his daughter. says, that can't be true. This is the, this is the scriptures. This is God's word. This can't happen. That's no, exactly what happened. Jephthah kept a vow. It was a wrong vow, but understand, hear this carefully. Did Jephthah really mean sacrifice? Yes. Was his daughter the sacrifice? Yes. And as difficult as that is to read and to hear, that's what happened. And what is that saying? Remember this idea of erosion? The very episode where God uses a savior judge to rescue his people, we see something exceedingly wrong, both in Jephthah and in the Israelite society. Hear this. Basic morality seems to have been eroded. What is happening, their national identity is the people of God. The qualities of righteousness, of godliness, are being eroded at every turn. And now it's affecting the entire land, including the one who is leading the people. Psalm 11.3 says, When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The foundations are being destroyed. What can the righteous do? What a warning for us. Is our foundation firm? And can I just for a second be very open and honest and transparent with you? Struggled with this message this week. Not for the content, but for its presentation. I want to speak the truth of God, but I want to do so with grace. The truth sometimes has to get deep into our heart before we can respond to the grace of God. And I look at this and I say, "What is our foundation firm? Or has careless inattentiveness caused an erosion of our foundational faith principles? resulting in perspectives and actions we would never have entertained before. It appears to have impacted Jephthah in at least two ways. Careless words. One of Jephthah's strengths came back to bite him. Eugene O'Neill is a playwright early in the 20th century, and he says, God gave us mouths that clothes and ears that don't. Maybe that should tell us something. Is that the truth? Jephthah opened his mouth one too many times with a vow that he would deeply regret. 
You say, well, what is the point of that, Pastor Gabe? Why, why is that so important? Why, why should we think about our words that way? Listen to what Scripture says. Watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut. You will stay out of trouble. Amen to that. Ecclesiastes 5, don't make rash promises. And don't be hasty in bringing any matters before God. After all, God is in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words be few. I wonder how many times we have said things that we never followed through on that we really didn't mean. And I'm not talking to just people. I'm talking to God. Matthew 5. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that, this comes from the evil one. Be careful what you say. The second way is through compromised worship. Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses is laying out what God has taught them for 40 years. This is what he says, you must not worship the Lord your God the way the other nations worship their gods. For they perform for their gods every every detestable act that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices to their gods. And what has Jephthah just done? His careless words have led to a compromised worship. He worshiped God. He knew God. He was chosen by God. But hear this. But the voices of Canaan, the voices of Canaan still had a level of influence over his life. And I would suggest this morning, the voices of our society in 2018 still have a level of influence over us. And they can erode the character and the qualities and the values that we really hold dear. God help us if they do. The vow he expressed compromised the worship of the true God and devalued the most sacred thing of all, life itself. See how far he's come. A.W. Tozer summarized it perfectly. Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. You need to see, you need to read it again. Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. You see, my heart has been heavy this week. I've had to reflect on my own life and say, God, where are those areas of erosion? Where's the slippage? Where are the cracks? And to be absolutely frank, it's just the more I would would pray and the more I would study, it just seemed like there was more and more that God just kept pointing out in my life. I'm grateful for that. You see, when you look at this story, yes, there was victory over Israel's enemies, but at what cost? At what cost? If you read on in the story and you get to chapter 12 and you read the first seven verses, you find out that Gilead, which is where Jephthah is from, and another one of the tribes, Ephraim, are virtually engaged in a civil war. They're fighting each other. They're killing one another. The nation, for all intents and purposes, is disintegrating. 
Why? Because of repeated confession without true repentance. Because of carelessness and inattentiveness to core values that made Israel's gods select people. And because the theme verse of Judges is once again true, Judges 21-25, everyone did as he saw fit. What a tragic story. It's victory on the one side, but it's tragedy on the other. You remember the house story we started with a minute ago? Well, as I said, we bought, we bought the house. We proceeded the process of remodel. And what was interesting, before we could do anything inside or anywhere on the property at all, we had to address the issues of the foundation. And so guys got underneath there and they jacked the foundation up and they repaired and they replaced and they did amazing things. And then you'd walk in the house and it was absolutely level, like it's supposed to be. And what had been a general inattentiveness in maintaining the foundation, it took extreme measures to get it back to a place where it was solid. But when it was solid, then the building could begin. And I'm so grateful today, now all these years later, that property is still there blessing the pastors who pastor that church. And the value of that property today is somewhere between four and five times the value of it when we purchased it. And this morning, I believe the same can be said of us. As our foundations, as we recognize things that may have happened over a decade of time, an erosion, disintegration, when we repair that, when we literally say, Jesus, I'm sorry, and I'm turning away from, and I am turning towards you, I believe that he begins to do something in us that will produce fruit so much greater than we could ever imagine in our lives. Could it be the four and five times greater? Yeah, I know that's a property analogy. I understand. But I believe God can do exceeding abundantly in us more than we can even think or imagine as we dedicate ourselves to him. So I just ask, is there slippage? Is there slippage in the basic, are the basic faith foundations crumbling? Do we find ourselves doing things today that we never would have done when we came to faith in Christ? Do we feel a liberty to say things, to embrace attitudes, to share things that we never would have shared? Do we take a careless look at things that we should have no business as a follower of Jesus Christ in our life? Do I still know how to blush when I'm faced with things that are contrary to godliness? Have I embraced more of the culture around me than the Christ within me? Do I speak carelessly, saying things I never intend to do? Or use language that's not God-honoring? Am I doing things now that I stopped doing when I came to faith in Christ. Those are hard questions. So what do we do with it? One scripture, Matthew 7, says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man 
who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And listen carefully, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Specifically, when Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine, what's he referencing? He just has been teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and so he talks about attitudes. He talks about what is it that we embrace in our heart. He talks about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. He talks about being generous. He talks about being a person of prayer. He talks about not letting your righteousness be seen by others. He talks about treating other people like you want to be treated. We are to be obedient to the words of Jesus Christ. So this last phrase, knowing Jesus and obeying what Jesus said will provide a lasting and a firm foundation. It will shore up your foundation. It will fill the cracks. It will rebuild that which has been eroded. So this morning as we bring our time to a close, this scripture is not in your notes. It's not even on the screen. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I just want you to look at me as I read it. I want you to hear what I believe God's Spirit wants to say to us. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. See to it, brothers and sisters. Let me stop. Brothers and sisters, we're family together. We know Christ. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of us, and I'm going to change the language a little bit, that none of us has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you, hear this carefully, so that none of us may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. The faith that you and I have embraced when we came to faith in Christ needs to be the conviction that we maintain firmly Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. And I pray in these next few moments, you'll just speak life to us. Lord, the nation of Israel was in a difficult place. There was a national erosion that was happening. It was affecting every corner and quarter of your people. So Lord, the question that we ask, I ask of me, Lord, of the foundations, have they eroded? Have I been inattentive and careless? Have I, have I just not been as careful as I need to be? So Lord, this morning, I would just say, yes, Lord, forgive me. I turn away from. I turn away from all those idols. I turn away from those things that 
have no place in my life whatsoever. And I turn towards you. Lord, I pray that each of us this morning would make a similar confession and then the repentance would follow that confession. So that, Lord, we can be that that house that's built upon a solid foundation that, Lord, glorifies you over and again and above and beyond anything that we can think or imagine. And Lord, we may feel very unworthy in the process. And to one degree, that's great. We, we are unworthy. You make us worthy. But Lord, remember, you're the one who defines us. Well, we stand upon that truth today. So Lord, I pray that you will fill those cracks. You will repair the foundations so that they would be firm and solid. So that we can build, so that you can build upon us the life that pleases you. We thank you. We give you praise and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the lights to lower. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads with me. I'm not even going to look around, and I'm going to ask you to do the same. But you just say, you know something? There's been some erosion in my life. There's been some compromise. There's been some carelessness, some some inattentiveness. I have entertained things that I never thought I would. I've said things that I never thought I'd say. I've had attitudes that are not, they're not godly. Just maybe it's one of those things. Maybe it's all of those things, a combination. It doesn't matter. But if that's you, just put your hand in the air. Jesus, you see hands. I don't. You do. But Lord, more than hands that are lifted, you see hearts that are broken this morning before you. Forgive us, Jesus. We are crying out to you. We are sorry. But Lord, let us move from regret to repentance and turn away once and for all and stop the cycle of repetition, a downward spiral away from the things of God in the name of Jesus. name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Lord, we confess, but we also repent. Because, Lord, I don't want to hear. I won't save. I don't want to hear, let the things you're putting your trust in save you. No. I want to hear the response. I cannot see the misery of my people any longer. And I forgive generously. Let it be so, I pray. But Lord, more than just for us to receive the forgiveness of God, which I know is assured as we repent, I know that. But God, I pray that we would shore up the foundation of our lives. Lord, that we would rebuild that foundation by, Lord, following you, taking up our cross and following you, denying ourselves and following you. Let us be obedient to the words of Jesus Christ. And his, His commands are not burdensome, but Lord, they lift us, they fill us with life, and let us be obedient to you. Thank you. We give you honor and praise this morning. Build our lives. Restore our foundations, we pray. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.